Welcome to the Movement Minutes with your host, Reed Nellis. Here, we pursue the human connection. We learn how to empower one another. We discuss clinical pearls. We discover our passions. We reflect on our capacity to achieve. We remain open to novel trends and concepts because regardless of our backgrounds or experiences, our successes or failures, we all speak the same language, human movement. On today's episode of the podcast, we've got Dr. TJ Ridley. TJ is an orthopedic surgeon, and he practiced with his residency down at Vail Stedman Clinic down in Colorado, which is like the best orthopedic surgery and PT rehab facility in the nation as it relates to working with athletes. TJ is a huge fan of conservative measures. Yes, he's an orthopedic surgeon, but we talk in today's episode how just because he has a hammer, he doesn't view everything as a nail. Sometimes, especially with like overuse, tendonitis, tendinosis injuries or disuse injuries, a conservative measure, whether that's PT, chiropractic, sometimes using cortisone injections or just rest and managing weight and things like that should be and could be the first course of action. On top of all that, we get into a couple other rants regarding chiropractic and PT and orthopedic surgery and how we should all play a little bit nicer in the sandbox with one another because at the end of the day, our goals are the same. We're all trying to get people moving and feeling better to enjoy their lives. So join me in welcoming Dr. TJ Ridley. All right, everybody, we got Dr. TJ Ridley here. TJ is a uh, orthopedic surgeon. He's uh, been around the world, or at least to Colorado once or twice, and actually in the world through uh, working with the U.S. ski team. He's been to, I think, Norway and where else? Switzerland. Switzerland. Awesome. Great experience. So yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But before I do anything else, TJ, tell us about yourself. Who is TJ Ridley? Yeah, so uh, I've been a practicing physician here at Twin Cities Orthopedics now for six months. Uh, got a wife. We just uh, bought a house in the suburbs. You know, generally I I like just being very active. I'm an avid skier, snowboarder with the with the ski teams, obviously, and then uh, I love hiking, fishing, biking, golfing. Still play hockey. Um, so I just try to be as active as I can and outdoors as much as possible. Yeah, busybody. That's uh generally the most, most people that I've interviewed and had on this podcast as a guest and most people that I like as a person in general are just like constantly busy, just a slight dosage of ADHD to them. So (laughs) I like that. You mentioned fishing, skiing, snowboarding, all that stuff. How much do you miss being in Colorado from working at Vail Stedman Clinic uh, and not being able to go trout fishing every day? (laughs) I miss it probably every day. Uh, I mean, we had Vail literally in our backyard at the clinic. And so I got to go fishing right behind the library there I you know hike right up the mountain get catch the chairlift so we love being back we love Minnesota there's still lots of good ways to be outside be active you maybe have to work for it a little bit more but yeah um we we love it here but we miss it there my wife and I always joke I I lived in Colorado for a number of years as well and we were like yeah we had no issue we lived in the front range so we had no issue driving two three hours every day, especially every weekend to go up and do whatever we wanted to do. But now it's like, yeah, you know, Duluth is only four hours away. We could go up to or Lutzen or, you know, anywhere else. Like, yeah, but that's a long drive. I'm like, right. It's just a matter of thinking and where your mind's at with that. But right. I wasn't spoiled. I didn't get to live in Vail. So I'm jealous <laughs> of that. Jealous of that. I miss like vendettas and all the places. Oh, yeah. 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 We're going back in a couple of weeks. There you that's go. You got your restaurant now. list 
restaurant oh, yeah. list to hit. There you oh, go. Yeah, you got to get reservations ahead of time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about working at Stedman Clinic and your uh, experience there. You were there for a year or how long? Yeah, so it's a 12-month fellowship training program. Uh, so my specialty was sports medicine. So, you know, sports medicine is pretty vague, but generally you're you're treating athletes of all levels, recreational athletes, kids, professional athletes, the ski team, obviously. Uh, so you really get to see just the whole spectrum of, of people trying to get back to their, their lifestyle, getting back to what they want to do. And, you know, the Stemming Clinic's pretty, pretty unique. It's, it's kind of a destination healthcare spot. And so we have patients flying in from all over the world. Um, and then we have, you know, athletes from all different teams, all different sports, uh, flying in just to, just to see us, just to get their consultations. Um, you know, we're often in direct communication with, you know, the professional athletes and their agents and the teams and the coaches. Uh, so you really get an experience, not only in the operating room and in the clinics, but then kind of the behind the scenes stuff of what it takes for some of these athletes to get back to their, back to their professional sports or college sports, whatever it is. Yeah. I love, you know, when we speak to people like you or people in the, that level of the sports industry world, whether it's on the athletic side as an agent or an athlete or their coach or uh, ATC, head ATC or anything like that, or mm -hmm. on the, I don't want to call it the behind the scenes side, but the private side of it or who else they're seeing, it's a team atmosphere and being able to work with both of those aspects and see both of those world worlds to get that athlete able to do whatever they want to do, whether it's a recreational athlete or a professional athlete is fun. And uh, I, I love that part of the job too. So before Vail Stedman Clinic, you went to college, undergrad and grad school. Um, let's get into a little argument here. I like picking people's brains on this. It's classically argued amongst PTs and chiros that like, oh, our school is just as hard as an MDs. Is it? Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, our curriculum is the same. We learn the same stuff. Because yeah, here's, here's, I think here's my answer to it. It's not. It's completely different. It might be the same hours. It's a completely different lens to view it with. So I want to, I want to I see what you have to say. Yeah, I think it's different. And I think even within medical school, it's just, it depends on your, you know, your personality, but I think it also depends on what, what you want to do with that degree. Um, there's a different level, I think, of competition or, um, you know, drive in different specialties or different areas of medicine that you want to work with. If you're, you know, that athletic trainer and you want to go work with, you know, the pro teams or division one team, you're probably going to be putting in the extra hours and doing the extra things you know, on weekends doing that kind of stuff. And so your, your workload might be much harder, much more stressful than, than somebody else who's in, you know, PA school or med school that, that isn't going for that sort of like top level kind of thing. So um, I think it all just depends on what you're trying to do with that degree and, and how you kind of handle the, the, the stresses and the, the workload. Yeah, your aspirations can be your level of drive. Um, right. for lack of better terms, like in your world as an MD, I mean, there's a billion different MD stuff that like categories that you could fall into. If you want to get into sports medicine, orthopedic surgery and go that route, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's not like a, a expansive level of elective courses you can take through school that lead you down that route. You take the exact same courses for the most part as every other person, whether they want to go into gynecology or anything else. I mean, you still have to take the same prerequisites and 
how much effort you want to put on top of that separates you from everybody else. Right. Yeah. And I think that's very similar in our industry. I mean, speaking from the PT world, if a PT and like it goes through school and all they want to do is get somebody, you know, outpatient ADL back to living their life where they came in with, without injury or issue, that's, I don't want to make it sound like an easy job by saying that, but it's, it's a cushy position. You show up, you go home, you don't take much work home with you compared to a private practice individual. And if that's somebody's route that they want to take when they enter or exit school, learning the business side of things, learning how to uh, navigate bedside manner, maybe a little bit differently so that you create buy-in and all that stuff is, is different. It's a different load. It's a different aspiration. So aside from that, uh, uh, how did you get interested in the world that you're in now? I mean, when, when did you know that you were going to be an orthopedic surgeon? Yeah, I pretty much knew I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon before I wanted to be a doctor or anything else. Um, I, you know, I'm pretty much like everybody else in this industry. They've had their own injuries that, that kind of start them thinking about this whole world of medicine. And, you know, for me, it was the same. I played hockey, football, and lacrosse in high school and was banged up all the time. Um, had a bad shoulder injury and was seeing an orthopedic surgeon. And that kind of started getting me thinking about orthopedics. But I mean, I've always loved, you know, science and, and biology and anatomy and, and mechanics. And, and I loved working with my hands. And, and then, you know, I loved helping people and kind of seeing that result and being hands-on with that result. So it all just kind of, you know, culminated into the, you know, orthopedic world and, and then sports medicine. Yeah, I think uh, I had a very similar interaction. And when I very seldom told story, because it, it usually doesn't even start this far back, but when I was in middle school, high school, I banged up injuries, saw orthopedic surgeons, other conservative measures, everything, the whole gamut. And originally, like, if you look at my my football yearbook, it's like, Reed Nellis, what is he going to school for senior year stuff? It's like, UMD, pre-med, wants to be an orthopedic surgeon. I ended up having a traumatic brain injury and came out with a nice little tremor, which I don't think you'd want me working on the bedside with you with a nice little left-handed tremor with a scalpel on it. And even before that injury, I was already thinking like, damn, I don't know if I'm smart enough. And so I took the MCAT and all that stuff. And it was a decent score. And like, I could have pursued it, but then I started looking at like the lifestyle. Uh, Cause I was working volunteering at a hospital at that time, talking to orthopedic surgeons, DOs and stuff. And they're like, yeah, I'm 42. I have, you know, we're, we got our first kid on the way. I'm working overnight shifts, this and that, like the totem pole-esque kind of rigmarole that you have to go through to be at the upper echelon in that industry. I just couldn't deal with it personally. And that that's, that's my perspective on it. How do you deal with that being a younger doc? You know, it's, it's, it's funny, you know, you go through your training, you go through 13 years of training and then you know, your last year as a fellow at the Stebbin Clinic. I mean, that's like the pinnacle almost of yeah. your career. You're at this just amazing clinic that, and, and, and the practices of the surgeons that are there are just like everything you want to aspire and you're right there and you're in it and you feel like you're at the top of, you know, top of the chain being a fellow. And then you start your first year of practice and you're all the way back down to the bottom yeah. of the all over again. And you got your senior partners and you got to kind of, fight for your clinic space and your operating room times and things like that. So, but I mean, I've done this time and time again, whether it was in, you know, professional career or, you know, sports, you know, every, every, every time you start a new season or, you know, you go from being a freshman to a sophomore to a, to a junior to a senior, you've got to work your way up and you got to just put your head down, say yes, you know, 
put in the extra time and the extra work. Lights turned off. Yeah, this, is, this, is what, this is what happens when you're a junior partner. Yeah. They turn the lights off on you. <laughs> so for those listening, uh, TJ's sitting here talking, and we've got it all recording, and he's sitting so still, all of his lights turned off in his office. Awesome. <laughs> um, but no, I, th- I think that's a great analogy. It's basically like going from JV to varsity. Like you might be the best JV player, whatever position that is. But once you jump into the varsity scheme in your junior year or sophomore year, whenever you jump the ship into varsity, you're the low man on the totem pole again. And you basically went from Stedman, which for those who don't know, is basically like your wet dream of a clinic when it comes to not only orthopedic surgery, but rehab and everything. I mean, it's, it's the upper echelon of the upper echelon in this nation. And when you go from that to starting your own practice, wherever it may be, and I mean, Minnesota's got great clinics around here, but this could be in Topeka, Kansas, for all I care. You start all over again. And it's, it's a whole new world, which I think you're navigating it quite well. That being said, I just kind of mentioned Stedman being not only orthopedic surgery, but using conservative measures. You're a huge fan of the less is more approach. Start with the least invasive solution first and kind of taking a stepwise fashion into eventually surgery. I think this is a common myth that people think about of like, oh, a surgeon's just going to want to see, you know, if you have a hammer, everything's a nail. Well, you really go against that mold quite a bit. Uh, tell us why you love conservative measures first and where, where you think they fit into your practice. Yeah, absolutely. I am a huge proponent of, of trying the least invasive measures first, the most conservative, and trying to just work a stepwise approach through those to the, to the least invasive, to the you know, more invasive, and then surgery as a last resort. Um, and you know, I think a lot of that stems from kind of going back to how I got inspired into orthopedics. I you know, had my own shoulder injury. And I had one doctor tell me, yep, you need surgery, sorry. And thankfully my mom kind of pushed and said, let's get a second opinion. And then the other guy said, let's try rehabbing this. And long story short, I never needed surgery and happy that I never did. You know, not everything needs a surgery. And just recently uh, I had both of my hips uh, scoped. I had labor repairs on both my hips. And I spent every day in Vail down in in that PT office. And I just saw just the amazing work that, that those guys do and the knowledge and the expertise that, that those therapists had. I mean, I always thought, oh, PT is just somewhere you send someone so that they come back and need surgery later. Yeah. But it, I mean, it is amazing the skill that, that you guys have of just working with your hands, different tools, different mental coaching. I mean, all aspects. And so I really am a firm believer that, that physical therapists, chiropractors, athletic trainers, I mean, all the different non-operative stuff out there, it, it works. It's not just me sending it away because I don't know what to do. It it really works and it worked for me. And it, and I truly believe it works for other patients. I mean, I probably, you know, of the, of the patients I see, maybe 80 to 90% I send to therapy, chiropractor, wherever. And we talk about conservative treatment options first, even before doing injections or anything more, you know, more invasive. Um, it's pretty, pretty rare that, that patients are kind of ready for surgery right when they see me. Yeah. They come in with a big giant red flag on their head and you're like, yep, that's a surgery issue. Like that's, that's yeah. a rare commodity to come by. I love what you said, because it goes the same in our world, right? Like whether it's PT, massage, rehab, ATC world, chiropractic world is I'm only the solution to the issues that I'm a solution for. If somebody comes in with a problem that I cannot, it's either out of my scope or it's just beyond my wheelhouse, whatever the reason is, 
we have to understand when to refer out. And every single person that walks through your door clinically, you're not going to be the answer for. And it might be the exact same labral tear diagnosis. This labrum looks exactly the same as this labrum, but given their athletic endeavor that they want to pursue, given their age, given their diet, given their anything, you may, for person A, say like, yep, surgery is going to be your best option based off of all these variables, right? For person B, it's not an option. It's not in our deck of cards yet. And let's go down this route instead. Do you see that happening uh, with certain issues more than others? For example, like I said, labrum tears or meniscus tears, uh, which I've picked your brain on extensively in the past. Yeah. No, I think you put it just perfectly. I mean, it totally depends on the patient's expectations, who they are and what they expect and what their goals are. You know, a labral tear may look like a labral tear to everybody on the MRI, but when you, you, you know, you really need to talk to the patient and get to know who they are, what their goals are, what they're trying to get back to, what they've already been through so that you can really understand, you know, what treatment course that you can take or how fast to push them along through whatever treatment course that is, you know, rotator cuffs, for example, not every rotator cuff tear needs a surgery. And in fact, most of them don't. And most of them get better without surgery with, you know, injections, things like that. And, you know, if, if you were to just sign every rotator cuff up that you see on the MRI report up for surgery, most of your patients probably aren't going to do that well. And so you really have to learn who they are and what they want out of their treatment. Yeah. I think, like you said, if you, if you gave every let's say, especially supraspinatus, most common torn rotator cuff, right? If you did surgery on every single supraspinatus tear that you see, the objective outcome measures of all those individuals is going to be a varying success. And who knows if you would have done rehab instead of surgery on XYZ individual, they might have had even better success based off of their, their variables, right? An elite pitcher is probably going to need a different kind of care than a 95 year old osteoporotic woman with the same exact diagnosis, right? So um, I love that. Uh, you kind of mentioned a little bit on this of, of hard to recover from. What do you find, uh, especially in your wheelhouse of hips, shoulders, knees being the most common things that you work with, being the hardest surgery that uh, people have difficulty recovering from? Not from the surgeon's fault or rehab fault. It's just, it's a long process. Yeah, I think the, the two that come to mind are ACL reconstruction and rotator cuff tears. Um, We're not all Adrian Peterson and come back in six months. Right, right. There's been a lot of, yeah, there's been a lot of data coming out recently of professional athletes and their ability to return to their high level of play. And a lot of the recent literature has said that a pretty significant amount of of these athletes cannot return back to their their same level of play. They may still get back to to the league, but they're not producing the numbers or the, the, you know, time on the court, time on the field that they do before the injury. And of course we hear great stories like Adrian Peterson, they come back and they have amazing seasons and that's the minority. That's, I mean, yeah, that doesn't happen very often. And, you know, we, we, we used to, you know, the goal of ACL rehab was getting back to sport as soon as possible. Yeah. Oh, four months, five months, six months. And we're trying to advance our rehab protocols to get people back sooner. And then we started realizing re-injury rates were just skyrocketing. And now the, the literature would suggest that at a minimum, you should go back at seven months and realistically, probably more like nine months. There was a recent yeah. study that came out that every month 
you wait after seven months, their risk of re-injury goes down significantly. So, um, and it's just, it takes a long time for the, the, you know, neuromuscular training to return to that high level. I was just going to say, I think I was reading the same article you're mentioning and basically say that after month six, or they kind of mentioned it as more of a, a, um, not more of a timestamp, but a specific portion of their rehab has been processed and progressed upon. But at that time, the next two to three months is neural cognition and neural pathway training, basically grooving the habits that may, especially in a non-traumatic ACL tear, may have caused that ACL to rupture in the first place. So right. if it's non-traumatic and we just have a load deload inefficiency that led to a, uh-oh, right? We have to train why that pattern existed in the first place. And those last couple months of rehab and, and really, like I said, grooving that pattern are crucial with getting back to perhaps not the 100% pre-injury rate, but as high as we can for that individual, uh, regardless right. of the sport. As you mentioned, uh, I mean, you know, I can, I can surgically rebuild someone's ACL no problem, but there's most of the time, there's a reason why they tore in the first place. And that's the harder thing to correct. Uh, you yeah. know, retraining neuromuscular, getting them to not land in valgus, getting, you know, training their body to land appropriately, plant appropriately. That stuff takes a long time. And that's lifelong habits that need to be broken. Yeah. I mean, habits are formed from many small decisions, whether that's a good habit or a bad habit or indecisions for that matter too. And we have to change those decisions consciously before they can become subconsciously functional. Uh, that takes time and repetition through months and months and months, whether that's prehab or rehab. How long does it take to do an ACL surgery? Mm, 90 minutes. 90 minutes, right? That ACL after that surgery is really freaking strong the surrounding musculature and tissue and neurocognition around that tissue is not yet. And that's what takes time for rehab, right? So um, I love that as an example. It's perfect. And that can, I'm sure, translate to hip osteotomies, to labral tears, to FAI impingement, to, you mentioned rotator cuff or hell, even UCL tears and Tommy John's. I mean, it, it all translates regardless of the, whether it's a ligamentous injury or structural injury, it all takes time and repetition to groove those patterns, right? Right. Awesome. So speaking of research, you do a lot of research and you like to stay up on data on this stuff. Um, for those listening and viewing, if you haven't noticed by now, TJ is kind of a nerd, which is why I like him. Um, <laughs> I mean, we're all kind of nerdy in our own, right? But uh, one of the coolest things that I see you doing a lot is using like 3D models and really practicing on, um, I don't want to, for lack of better terms, fake things. How much of that plays into your role as a surgeon and where did you kind of pick up all these tactics from? Is that like a, a prerequisite to be in surgery? Is it mandated or is it just something that you like doing? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely something I like doing and I like just perfecting my craft and I like rehearsing and practicing and then going out and performing. And I mean, I really see myself as a surgeon. I mean, as a clinician, you know, that's sort of your mental decision-making, you're, you're talking with patients, but then in the operating room, I, you know, I see myself as a, as a technician and, yeah. and, you know, I really want to perfect, you know, I read literature and, and I work on my conversations with patients. And in the same way, I, I practice my physical skills too. So, you know, running through a lot of kind of what you're referring to with the 3D models and things like that is, is I can go through essentially the surgery beforehand in my head and mentally do those mental reps, visualize everything, 
and then I can go, you know, execute that surgically. Um, and, you know, I really got, got into it, uh, at, at Stebbin clinic, we had uh, a laboratory right down the hall on the same level as our clinics. And if you had a break in the day or you had a light day or, or whatever, you just go over to the lab and you can practice your surgeries. We had arthroscopy stations set up. We had all the implants you could practice with and get your hands on. And so I really just, I tried to get into that lab as much as I could. And, and now, even now still, I'm, I'm getting in the lab at least once a month. I have a lab tonight that I'm going to, to essentially practice the surgery that I have coming up to make sure everything is set, everything's ready to go. And, you know, it's, it's just like athletics, you practice, 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 and then you get to go out and perform and, you know, you're not going to be able to perform your best if you haven't prepared. Yeah. I love any analogy to sports. I'm a big fan of, but like, it's the same idea. Like let's say football running in an offense against a defensive scheme. You might see a five, four defense or a nickel package from XYZ team one week with you know, a six veer, a play that's designed in your playbook, but that's not going to work on the Titans or the Buccaneers or whatever you're seeing next week. They have a different uh, personnel package in there. It might be the same formation. It might be the same diagnosis in a clinical world, but each morphology, each adaptation, each person is drastically different. When you can practice on that specific individual uh, with like a 3D print of their hip, their shoulder, their knee, that's awesome. I think that's that trend in technology is a freaks me out, but b really cool all at the same time. Um, I've mentioned that to you before. I'm just waiting. Like you know my history with my knee. Um, I'm just waiting until like it's not a major issue, right? But I'm waiting until I can get like a fully bionic knee, and then you know go try out to be a kicker and have like a uh, whatever movie that was from the '90s where the kid breaks his elbow and now he's like a stud pitcher or something then make a million dollars, but continuing with kind of the, the surgical conversation here, uh, in, in my world, and I don't know if you're familiar with this. I I'd assume you are the joint by joint concept of certain joints need mobility, certain joints need stability as we go up and down the body. So for example, thoracic spine needs more mobility. Generally the glenohumeral joint needs more mobility. Generally the hip needs more mobility. Generally the knee, low back, scapulothoracic junction generally need more stability. When you get into surgical interventions, and let's pick on a shoulder, which is a very complex area, how much of that is kind of in the back of your mind when you're talking to somebody about a conservative measure or potentially surgery? Uh, For example, they need a labral reconstruction. When you're talking to the rehab specialist in-house or their therapist and kind of uh, doing a collaborative effort with this kind of individual, are you talking about mobility stability or is that kind of just get the job done, leave it up to the next person. Yeah, and no, that's a good thought. I don't really use those terms, mobility, stability, but I guess in a way that's what I'm trying to relate. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when I'm instructing a therapist, I'm, you know, I'm trying to at least relay to them through my notes of what I, what I think is deficient and then what I think they need to work on. And, and you know, I, I probably could do a better job, you know, categorizing it uh, into stability, mobility. Um, but really I, I generally try to just think of strength, range of motion and kind of think more anatomically. That's just kind of how my, my, my brain and my training is just kind of always thinking about the anatomy and the mechanics. And so I try to just relay it in that way, but, um, I suppose, you know, commute more effective communication with 
somebody who's thinking like like you is being able to translate it into mobility stability. No, and I mean I'm not I'm not saying that you're not doing a good job at your job. Your job is mostly like I'm a technician to some degree on my table, but you are much more of a technician on your table than I am, right? Table shapes aside, right? Um, but what I'm getting at more so is like the conversation that if I was as good as surgery as TJ is, I'd be a surgeon. If TJ was good at rehab and you know getting people going through the painstaking time and repetition stuff as I was, he'd be in my job, right? We 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 have our certain pathways, and what I what I get frustrated with is when patients, clients, lay people chiropractors and surgeons alike bash the other side of it. Like they have the same education and the same goals. Well, the the goal is to get the person better. Your side of the equation, your side of the solution is X, Y, Z, do the surgery for lack of better terms. The therapist side of the equation is after surgery or before surgery, depending on the timeline of the, that individual, pick it up from there and continue to get the ultimate goal of getting the person better. Right. So, uh, I kind of threw you a a hardball on that one, but you answered perfectly. No, I think you make a good a good point though. Um, you know, when I when I look at developing my rehab protocols and I put them all up on my website and try to send it with the patient to send to the to the therapist, and I try to look and compare to other people's, uh, you know, other surgeons and therapists what their protocols are, and they list you know lots of different exercises that they can and can't do and and different you know you know modalities. I kind of take the the route of just putting in what I think they should or shouldn't do as far as range of motion, weightlifting restrictions, and then let you guys, let the therapists, the chiropractors then work within that with their expertise of, well, okay, what specifically does the patient need? Not, not every patient wants, needs a single leg squat. Maybe they need something a little bit more different, more personalized. So I always try to tell patients too, that, that kind of resist therapy. Oh, I can look it up online. And I, and I really kind of try to sell therapy on them that, that you guys really know what you're doing. You're experts and you can give them a customized tailored program to what they need. And just looking it up on the internet is just not enough. Yeah. I love that you just mentioned the word tailored. Cause I use that probably way too often. Um, you just got married. Did you wear a suit or was this the full, full COVID wedding? Like no, in your the basement yeah, we got married pre COVID thankfully. Okay. So. Okay. Um, but you got your suit tailored, right? Right. Why? So, yeah, you know, got to look good. Got to look good because it's the biggest, best day of your life, right? Like it's supposed to be for most people, right? <laughs> and then every day it, to, to speak to my wife, if she ever listens to this crap is marrying you, Kara, was the best day of my life. But every day since then was even better and better. So there's a little kiss yeah, for the day. Um, but no, you got it tailored because it was a big, big event. Surgery, a big event. You should tailor that, right? That's why you do your three, 3D model practice and stuff rehab that's a big event you want to come back as strong as possible as best as possible you should get that tailored not youtube it for lack of better terms yeah right right right. and there's a there's a lot of great material out there on social media youtube things like that um they're fantastic exercises and movement strategies and rehab strategies for someone it might not be the answer for you so knowing when to progress and regress those strategies is the important part Something you've been working with a lot lately and just seeing a lot lately clinically is overuse injuries, disuse injuries. Generally speaking, just starting from the bare basics here, do those often necessitate surgical interventions or are those more so leaning towards the corrective exercise, rehab, conditioning? Yeah. I mean, they almost never need surgery. So, you know, tendonitis, 
strains, sprains, things like that, almost never need surgery. They just need the appropriate conservative management, whether it's just a little bit of rest, you know, ice, anti-inflammatories, or yeah, do they need a rehab specialist, whether it's a, a massage therapist, a chiropractor, and I personally utilize all that stuff. I, I yeah. get a little little muscle tweak here and there and I'm I'm icing it immediately. I'm anti-inflammatories. I, I see a massage therapist that we have that's just phenomenal. I, I go to chiropractor, my neck gets a little kinked. I mean it it's good to utilize all those modalities for your little, you know, bumps and scrapes and things like that that are just they need a little encouragement, but they're gonna get better. They they almost never need a surgery. I think a lot of people get confused about that that, you know, if we're thinking of Forrest Gump, you know, upon many quotes, fantastic from that movie and little snippets in my mind that run through, it's the fact that shit happens, right? Like it happens. And sometimes you get little bumps and bruises and scrapes and strains and sprains and they heal. They're fine. You need a little bit of guidance, maybe a little catalyst, whether that's massage, uh, therapy, whatever it might be. You might need a little catalyst, but just give it some time, take it, let it run its course and it's going to get better. Uh, not everything is a big, uh-oh, that necessitates surgery. Right. right. If you're going to be, you know, living an active, healthy lifestyle, you're going to need some tune-ups here and there. It's yeah. just the way it is. Yeah. I mean, just like your car needs an oil change every now and then you need, you need a little setback and get back yeah. to that too. Cool. Aside from that, I, I've, I don't want to take up too much of your time here. So I've just got a couple questions that we ask every guest on the podcast. Uh, these don't have to be professionally related. These can be personally related. So don't feel like this is all clinical talk here. So answer however you need to. Um, I did not give you a heads up that we we're going to be asking these questions. So these are going to be real raw Dr. TJ answers here. But if you could be ranked in the top 10 in the world at something, what would it be and why? Ooh, probably snowboarding. It's okay. just, you know, it's my, my passion in life. I think if you would have asked me at 18, I would have said, you know, Call of Duty or Halo, something like that. <laughs> okay. Um, um, and, uh, maybe nowadays, now that I'm not as aggressively snowboarding, like I was when I was an idiot, when I was in my twenties, um, uh, you know, I, I got really into fly fishing when I was in Colorado and, uh, that would be something to just be like the world's best at. Yeah. I mean, I can speak to the tune of snowboarding and fly fishing at length that you lost me on the gaming side of things, but, um, <laughs> my wife always like, right when I started, right when I graduated, we moved out to Colorado. And, you know, I, I'd be gone for two, three hours at a time without being able to check in with her. And being an idiot, I would just go hike, you know, Berthoud Pass all by myself with my dog. You know, you don't have any cell phone service up there. So you call her at the bottom and be like, yep, I survived. No avalanches, that kind of fun stuff. Uh, but one day she saw me doing flips in the park and she's like, you can't do that anymore. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm still like, I, I can still do this. And I'm like, I used to be able to throw doubles. Like, sure, I can still do this. Uh, and then I kind of started thinking about what she actually meant by that. Like, Yeah for the rest of my career path professionally, I probably shouldn't be such an idiot doing things like that. So, um, so yeah, I've toned it down a little bit too, but now fly fishing, that's a whole different conversation. You can't really get injured unless you drown in waders, but, um, the frustration level that happens when there's like a giant tree right behind you and you're trying to, yeah, fling in a, yeah that's frustrating. What's one thing, you know, you can do better at and aspire to learn within the next year. Um, kind of going along with being frustrated with the tree behind you and getting knots in your line, being patient and just letting things, you know, work themselves out, you know, yeah. being, being as gung ho and type a and gunner, whatever you want to call it through school and, and sports, 
you know, it's, it's not all, you know, it's there, there's definitely a time to kind of sit back, take a breath, you know, let things play out, be patient. Um, and so that's, that's definitely something I, I work on, you know, personally, professionally, um, just, you know, taking a breath, living in the moment and just enjoying things the way they are. I think at the recent uh, world events that we've had, a lot of people have learned that they need to do that more. But I think even before that, uh, the world is a very fast place, fast pace, hectic place, right? And being able to just sit back, take things in and clinically even not being okay, not having the immediate right answer within the first two seconds that you're talking to somebody and being able to step back, assess the whole situation, see it from all sides of the approach, then come up with the right answer. Just let things kind of run its course in your brain uh, when making clinical decisions is, is a huge aspect as well. So love it. What's one actionable step that you would advocate for listeners and viewers to take better care of their relationships, their health, their movement, and their lives? Something that they could do on a day-to-day basis, a weekly basis, a monthly basis uh, to be better humans. Um, I mean, I think one thing that we can all do better is, is just uh, watching our what we eat and our diet. I think we so often just sort of disregard what we eat as, you know, what we eat is medicine. I mean, we take it three times a day and that's what fuels our body. And I think what's a little bit being fleshed out with the pandemic and everything like that is, is I think how unhealthy a lot of our diets are. We can be physically active and moving around, but I think if we don't have the foundation of a good diet, I think it's hard to then fuel the rest of what we want to do. And I think globally that will, you know, just help our healthcare system, communicable diseases. I mean, all the preventable diseases, chronic illnesses, injuries, and then the economic cost that that has on putting you out of work or insurance and coverage and everything like that. I think if we can be a healthier society that, that we'll all be a little bit better off. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the top 10 causes of death in the U S at least, there's a portion of diet in every single one of those, almost every single one of those, right? Yeah, I think diet's a huge aspect that a lot of people can do better on. Uh, the other side of that is it's, an act- it's, it's something we have control over. We don't have control over our genes. We don't like G-E and not like J-E. But uh, yeah, we don't have control over our genes. We don't have control over a lot of things uh, to a certain extent for a lot of individuals where they live. Some people are stuck in Minnesota and have to be inside for their jobs for hours and hours on end, but you can always change your diet uh, to some degree, right? So I like that answer. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate you taking your time out of your busy day. Um, I'm glad you did not pull. We kind of joked earlier, uh, this is this podcast isn't going to come out until probably this is not relevant anymore, but a surgeon in what state did you say that was? Took a court call. In oh, surgery. I forget what state it was. Plastic surgeon. He, he was in yeah. traffic court on Zoom while, while in the operating room. <laughs> Yeah, so we kind of joked that uh, we could do this podcast while TJ was like fooling around with my knee and just digging around in there from the operating table. But I'm glad we didn't go for that. But I do appreciate you taking your time out of your day uh, to chat with me, fill us in on a little bit more about uh, orthopedic surgery and uh, conservative measures that we should and could take depending on what we have going on. So um, my accountant is also calling me right now. (laughs) Um, Tax season, tax season. But I appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, for those of you who are on Instagram, go follow Dr. TJ Ridley. What's your handle? Uh, at Dr. TJ Ridley. No, it's pretty easy. Dr. Ridley. There you go. Pretty easy to remember. Yep. Uh, if you're in the state, 
you got an issue, bump, bruise, overuse, disuse, tear, something like that. You want to go see him, go, go fill out an appointment and uh, he does great work, everybody. So appreciate it, sir. Yes. Thanks for having me on.